Hi, Pastor Friend. I want to start today with an encouraging truth here on Shepherdology. This is episode 24, and I want to share this truth with you, and then we'll discuss our topic and have prayer for you. Through the summer, I've been meditating in the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and Paul referred to the glorious gospel in 1 Timothy 1.11, and then he talks about how the gospel impacts his own life and his ministry, and he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. I want to highlight one truth from Paul's testimony to encourage you with today, and it's this. The character of God is active in your call to ministry and in your ongoing ministry. The character of God is active in your call to ministry and in your ongoing ability to function in ministry. There are several truths packed into this testimony of Paul's, but let me just highlight for you the character of God. Twice he says, I obtained mercy. You see it in verse 13, and we see it also again in verse 16. He talks about the grace of God. In fact, in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. And that's one of those superlatives that Paul uses where he adds hooper or hyper Greek prefix to the word. He's talking about an overflowing abundance. It's over the top. It's way too much. He says, God showed me way too much grace. So we see the mercy of God, the grace of God. We see the long suffering of God. He said that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern. So those are qualities or characteristics of God that were active when God placed Paul in ministry. In fact, I was thinking about that phrase, putting me into the ministry, and it almost has the connotation of pushing me into the ministry. You ever feel that way? Do you feel like you were pushed into the ministry? Well, in some sense, I think that's the way it works, because sometimes we are reluctant. We fight with willingness, and God in his sovereignty overpowers and overcomes that and and even in spite of our weakness, our sinfulness, and our limitations, he pushes us into ministry. But he does so as an act of his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering. But then we also see some of these transcendent attributes of God. We see his mercy, his grace, and long-suffering, which focus on us and how we experience that. But then he says in verse 17, as he praises and exalts God. He says, now to the king eternal, 
immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here he's talking about God in his sovereignty, in his transcendence, in his immutability. He is the one who is eternal. He is infinite. He is unchanging. And he is not limited or diminished by what is visible, by what is physical. He is the invisible God. So so let's circle back to this encouraging truth. God, Paul said, God enabled me. So, so the enabling power for ministry comes from God. He says he put me into ministry. So God has placed you in ministry and provides ability for you in ministry. And it all flows from the character of God. It comes from his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, and the, the fact that he is eternal and immortal and invisible. And let me say it this way. You are in ministry because of God. In fact, one commentary I was reading emphasizes the passives in, in, this, uh, in this passage. All that God did to Paul and for Paul. So Paul didn't choose ministry. God chose him for ministry. Paul didn't have the ability for ministry. God enabled him for ministry and so on. And the same is true for you and me. You are in ministry because of God. And my friend, he put you in ministry and he will keep you in ministry. It is his character that is active in your call to ministry as well as in your ongoing ministry. Now, Paul's response to this was at the beginning of the passage in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. So give thanks when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling unworthy, when you're burdened down, when it seems like what you're trying to do is impossible. Give thanks to God for his character, his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering. And then at the end of the passage, he praises God. He exalts God. He says, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. So turn those thoughts of inability and inadequacy and unworthiness into worship. Worship the transcendent God because it's the character of God that is active in your call to ministry as well as in your ongoing ability to function in ministry. And now let's turn our thoughts to the topic that we're going to discuss today. And we are going to uh, have today another focus on the topic of implementing a current English Bible translation in your church. This, my my uh, um, thoughts on this topic were prompted by some response to the podcast I did a few episodes ago on essential steps of leading through change. And when I talked about leading through change, I gave some examples. And one of the examples I gave that I had experienced was leading a church through a transition from using exclusively the King James translation of the Bible to embracing and implementing a current English translation of the Bible. So in our last episode, episode 23, I started talking about that because I thought that would be helpful and interesting in case uh, some pastors are actually thinking about or going through a similar transition. 
And I gave an overview as well as some initial steps that we took as a church. So what I would like to do in this episode is give more details about what we did in the process of leading our church through embracing a current English translation and talk about what I communicated to our church as well as the outcome of that. And I was able to go back to my notes that I have uh, stored on my hard drive from the year 2009 and look over those again. And so I have these notes right in front of me, the notes that I used to speak to our church. And so I'm actually using those right now in communicating with you because I want you to hear the, the ideas and the concepts, but also even some of the wording that I used in communicating with them. So so this was um, uh, when I laid out for the church the, uh, the fact that we were looking at and moving toward embracing a current English Bible translation, and I gave them some reasons for doing this. There's a little bit of, of repetition from what I shared in the last episode, but then it leads into uh, some further ideas. So here are the reasons that I gave our church that we were pursuing embracing a current English Bible translation. First of all, because the Word of God should be available to all people in the most accurate and clear form possible. There are translations of the Bible available today that accurately represent the message of God's Word in language that English-speaking people currently use and can understand. I'm going to read something that I, I did read in the last episode, but I, I just think this is good to to be reminded of because this is, and the wording and the concepts here I think are important. While the KJV is a beautiful and powerful translation of the Word of God, it was produced 400 years ago, and the English language has changed. A fundamental principle in the preservation and translation of Scripture is that the Word of God should be available in the language of the people. 17th century Elizabethan English is not the commonly spoken language of 21st century America. The differences in vocabulary and grammar impede many people's understanding of God's message to man. So as I shared that with our church, I, I made sure that I wanted them to understand, I made sure to say that I'm not diminishing the power or the beauty, or the grandeur, or the majesty of the King James Version of the Bible, uh, not relegating it to antiquity. It does have an enduring quality to it that is unique and irreplaceable. But along with that is this truth that the Word of God should be available to all people in the most accurate and clear form possible, and English has changed. Now, let me give you reason number two that I shared with our people for pursuing the use of a current English Bible translation. The use of a current English Bible translation will enable us to better fulfill our vision for reaching out to all people and enjoying inclusive fellowship around the Word of God. So what I was emphasizing here is that our church had a biblical mission and vision for reaching people in our community, 
as well as in various places in the world, and that we wanted to um, facilitate and expand reaching people with the gospel. And the burden was that we would be communicating, trying to communicate the word of God to unbelievers or people who had very little exposure to biblical teaching with, with language that was difficult for them to understand. So the burden was that unbelievers would hear the word and be exposed to the scriptures in language they can understand and that we could present and distribute the word of God and the gospel unhindered, unencumbered by that archaic English. Young people, new Christians, all believers will benefit from the clarity of a current English translation in their personal reading as well as in group studies, classes, and worship services. And and this was something important for us to keep in mind because I thought that probably there was a significant number of people who were already using a current English translation in their own reading and their own study of the Bible. So we actually did a survey. We passed out a questionnaire and asked people questions about their personal Bible use. Let me give you the results of that survey. What we found was that 60% of our church members and attenders who responded to this survey, 60% used a translation other than the King James Version for their personal reading. And that was about the same for all age groups, so from young all the way to senior adults. Except for one age group, the 22 to 40 age group, 22 years old to 40 years old, and the uh, statistic on that, the percentage on that was 70%. So 70% of 22 to 40-year-olds in our church used a translation for their personal reading other than the King James Version. Now, that was very significant for us, and it was very helpful to understand It uh, informed our process, our decision, and also just helped us in communicating that to the church. So so this second reason, the the use of a current translation will enable us to better fulfill our vision of reaching out to all people and enjoying inclusive fellowship around the Word of God. The third reason that I gave was this. Using a current English translation, and this would be for, for preaching especially and teaching, will be less laborious. So using a current English translation will be less laborious for those preaching and teaching and leading Bible studies and in those kind of of events. So, So what this reflects is that a preacher or teacher explains the text. And sometimes there are, I mean, often there are terms or phrases in the text that need explanation because you have to interpret them. They have theological significance. But what we found was that with preaching from the King James Version, we were explaining words and phrases that were not understandable to a current audience because of the older English. In fact, I I received a comment from someone in this process, a member of our church, who said, um, you know, when you explain what's in the text as you preach, and I look at my current English translation of the Bible— my, my translation says what you stated in your explanation. 
So in other words, I was using time in my sermon to explain terms and words that they already had clearly in their current English translation. So a current English translation just facilitates that, makes it less laborious. Then the fourth reason that we that I presented for us to pursue uh, a current English translation in our church is this. And, and by the way, this one, somebody else shared with me, and I thought, you know you're exactly right. Using a Bible with archaic language can give the wrong impression that Bible Christianity is outdated and irrelevant. Using a Bible with archaic language can give the wrong impression that Bible Christianity is outdated and irrelevant. Now, this doesn't mean that the Bible needs to be in street language or dumbed down uh, so that it's as simple as possible. That's not the idea. But the idea is that if, if the language we're using is outdated and archaic, it can give especially unbelievers or younger people or new believers the idea that Christianity is outdated and irrelevant as well. And I can give examples of this, and I'm looking at a list here that I had in my notes, words like wist, anon, superfluity, gat, pertinence, unicorn, uh, flagon, helve, sottish, so on. These are words that are not in use at all in current English, but those are words that are in the King James translation of the Bible. And so a preacher would have to explain those, but also it just can send that message that this is something ancient here that, that represents an outdated form of thinking that I'm looking at. I mentioned Mark, uh, Mark Ward's book, Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, and Mark does a phenomenal job of emphasizing the problems and the encumbrances that come with some of this language and the need for it to be clear for today's audience. And so, again, I recommend that resource as well as Mark Ward's uh, videos on YouTube to you to get a better understanding of this. Now, listen to what the translators of the King James Version of the Bible themselves said. And I am quoting from the translators to the reader, which is the preface to the King James Version written by those who were directly involved in translating it. Listen to what they said. But how shall men meditate in what they cannot understand? How shall they understand that which is kept close in an unknown tongue? All of us in those tongues which we do not understand are plainly deaf. Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light, that breaketh the shell, that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain, that we may look into the most holy, that removeth the cover of the well, that we may come by the water. Without translation into the vulgar tongue, the unlearned are but like children at Jacob's well, which was deep, without a bucket or something to draw with. Now, again, here I've got to clarify one of these words. It's the word vulgar. We think of vulgar as being obscene, something that's off color. But that's not what they meant. That's not what that word meant as they wrote it. We, we would use a word common or generally used. 
So translation into, they said, the vulgar tongue, we would say into the common tongue, into the generally used language, or a term that we do use today is vernacular. So, so the translators of the King James Bible were saying that the, the scriptures should be translated into the vernacular, the common language, so that people can understand it. And that's powerful because those translators knew, and that's what they were endeavoring to do, and they did for their day. And so I shared that with our people and used that as, again, a, the basis for this argument, if you will, for pursuing and embracing a current English translation of the Bible. Now, there were a few concerns that I knew people had about going in this direction, and I shared those concerns as I presented this to our people. And I'm just going to touch on them here because uh, they might be similar in your situation. One of them was our practice. So, Our practice was to use only the King James Version for preaching and teaching. So using a current English translation would be a major change in our church's practice, in what people were used to, in the way things were done. And here's what I said to them. I said, this will have significant impact. And if if our deacons are opposed to this, or if I sense that it will divide the church, I will not do it. But at the same time, I do think it'll be good for us. It'll strengthen our ministry, and it is in my heart as your pastor to go in this direction. So I just acknowledge and recognize that this will be a change from our practice, and I did not want to uh, make it an issue, a divisive issue, um, and so that was part of our thinking. Another concern that I shared was there are people in our church who have a strong attachment to the King James Version. Uh, One way I illustrated this was if you have a a grandpa sitting on his front porch and he has a rocking chair that he's had for years and years and he enjoys that chair and he sits in it in the evening and talks to people and watches the world go by and somebody comes up and says, hey, I got you a new chair. Here, let me take your old chair away and give you this new chair. And he would say, I don't want a new chair. I like my chair. It's comfortable. It fits. I don't need a new one. And that's how some people feel about their translation of the Bible, the one they're comfortable with, and especially the King James Version. There's a strong attachment to it. They're comfortable with it. They love it. They don't want somebody to take it away and replace it with something new. And as a pastor, I understood that. I tried to convey understanding of that because of its familiarity, because of its beautiful language, maybe because they believed it was translated from the best manuscripts. There, there may be sentimental reasons, aesthetic reasons, even academic or, in their mind, theological reasons for not wanting to change. So I acknowledge this is a concern, this strong attachment to the King James Version. I also acknowledge the concern about unity. This could be divisive. And it was something that I really believed we needed to work through carefully as leaders, as pastors, and uh, as people, and make sure that we were as unified as possible in, in moving on in. Now, the conclusion that we arrived at was that we would pursue the, um, the, the use of a current English translation. And uh, but let me just share a little bit of, of what that looked like as far as the conclusion that we came to and how I shared that with our people. 
And again, I'm going to read a little bit here because, and let me, let me say it this way, I believe it's important for us as pastors to communicate clearly and even put important ideas and changes at times in writing so that we're not misunderstood, so that people can look at it and think about it and discuss it intelligently, and so that we can can point to it and say, this is what we're doing, this is what I've said, because many times there can be misunderstanding. And it just gives clear guidance to the church organizationally to have it in writing. So here's what I wrote, and here's what we presented once this decision was made. Historically, our church has used the King James Version of the Bible for all public preaching and teaching, and we've recognized the value of using other translations for personal reading and study. We are modifying that practice so that in our worship, study, and fellowship as a church, we not only recognize but also receive benefit from good current English translations of the Bible. And here's our position in practice. Preachers, teachers, and Bible study leaders may use either the King James, so we weren't eliminating the King James from our church life, or, and here's what we chose to do, or the New King James translation of the Bible as their primary scripture text in services, classes, and programs throughout the ministry of the church. And there's some more details there about children's ministries and all of that, but but we, we chose to embrace and use in the preaching and teaching primarily the New King James Version of the Bible. And I looked at the ESV, I looked at the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Uh, back at that time, the Holman Christian Standard Bible was emerging, and now it's the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. I think it's a good translation, as well as the New King James. Those were the ones that I, I looked the most closely at. Honestly, it came down to choosing for me between the English Standard Version and the New King James Version. There were some reasons that I thought, honestly, and still do, that the New King James has uh, some an edge, I think, on the ESV. Just some reasons I have in my mind for that. But, but honestly, one of the one of the most significant, compelling reasons that I chose and we chose to begin using the New King James was we had a large constituency of people in our church of members who were older. And I knew that they were probably not going to lay down their King James and pick up another translation and start using it. They were just going to keep carrying their beloved King James Bible to church. I did not want to disenfranchise them. And so I knew that if we used the new King James, it would provide that current English, but also the person sitting there with their King James could still easily follow along with me as I preached or a Sunday school teacher teaching, and it wouldn't be trying to figure out where we were because with other translations, there's such differences in the wording that it'd be hard to follow along with something else. So for, for out of consideration for that constituency in our church, that was one of the compelling reasons that we landed on the New King James. Now, we would certainly refer to, quote, uh, look at other translations and developed, a, I think, a new freedom in doing that. And so that was uh, that was the direction that we went. Now, I'd like to just share a couple of comments that came to me along the way, because I think this is helpful. We always hear negative feedback from changes that we make. Um, just a, a few comments that came back to me that were positive and supportive. 
Uh, one person wrote an email to me and said, uh, I, I had purchased New King James because the church planter we were assisting used it as his text. I began to read it for my daily devotions. And here's what this person said. Passages I had read many times, listen, became clear without reading a commentary to tell me what the text meant. I've used the New King James as my personal Bible ever since. Uh, here's what somebody else said. He was supportive of me, appreciated how I handled it. Then he said, I pray that anyone holding differing views can maintain a spirit of unity in Christ and engage in appropriate discussions on the topic. I believe our church will come through this stronger and more unified. And the catalyst to that end may be some folks decide to worship elsewhere. So this person was acknowledging the fact that there might be people who end up deciding to go to another church over that. And that was a reality that we had to face. But they were supportive of the decision that I made, and I appreciated that very much. In fact, as I shared this with our people, I acknowledged the fact that it could affect our unity, and I did not want that to happen. And I, I said, how will this affect our sweet spirit of fellowship and unity? Because our church enjoyed a sweet, warm spirit of fellowship and just a family atmosphere. And I said, I hope it will enhance it. And it's really your decision. You endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, quoting from Ephesians chapter 4. And we should focus on the true basis for unity. What is our fellowship around? It's not around a particular translation of the Bible. Our fellowship is in God and the gospel and the doctrines of the Bible that we know to be true. And I also said, remember, God hates sowing discord among the brethren. Proverbs six nineteen: he who sows discord among brethren. And divisiveness is a sin. And promoting an opinion, campaigning for a preferred position and dividing people over it is sin. And I said, if anyone engages in that, we will follow the New Testament instructions for dealing with a divisive person. So again, I wanted to shepherd our people and help their thinking and even their reactions if they felt strong in a different way. I said, it, it, you may feel it's necessary for you to fellowship elsewhere. I don't want that, but I won't try to talk you out of it. It was important for us as a church to make sure that we moved forward in unity and did not make translation, Bible translations, an issue of division. And I praise God. Our church came through it very strongly. Yes, there were some people who chose to move elsewhere. There wasn't a church split or even a, a major exodus, anything like that. And we moved forward in unity. And uh, I was back at, at that church just a few months ago, and the pastor was actually preaching from another current English translation of the Bible, the current pastor of, of the church. And just there's a freedom now in uh, in in learning from, preaching from, and fellowshipping around the truth, the Word of God, not just a specific translation. And I go back to, to the simple truth that I started uh, my teaching and preaching with, and I think it's important for us to keep in mind. God has spoken. We have his Word. What a privilege and a blessing that is. 1 Peter 1.25 refers to the word of the Lord that endures forever. And you and I as pastors have the privilege to preach the word and teach it and disciple with it and our churches embrace it. And 
The word doesn't change. Truth doesn't change. Language does. And so I still strongly believe there's a need for the word of God that endures forever in the spoken people of the language that we minister to and that we are endeavoring to reach with the gospel. I do hope that these ideas and my experience are helpful for you. And again, as I've said, my purpose is not to urge anyone to make a change, but maybe this will feed your thinking and uh, give you some help as you work through this process if, in fact, that's what you're doing. So I'd like to end with prayer and uh, pray for you, my pastor friend. So would you, wherever you are, quiet your heart and join me before the throne of grace? Heavenly Father, you are the unchanging, eternal God who is gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And we believe that by your grace and mercy and according to your sovereign eternal purpose, you have put us in ministry. You have placed us in ministry and you enable us for ministry. Please help my pastor friends to claim and cling to that encouraging truth. And then I also pray that you would guide them in making decisions, the little daily decisions they have to make, as well as major ones, and maybe even regarding significant change in their ministry, possibly even regarding the issue of Bible translation. Will you guide their thoughts? Will you give them wisdom from above? Will you fortify their courage? Will you help them to be patient and understanding and considerate with their people and have a good sense of what is right and when is the right time to do it? Father, we trust you for these things. We praise you for the privilege of serving you. And as Paul said, honor and glory forever and ever to you. In Jesus' name, amen.